0: Spirit of the Living God, you gave to us this book, the Bible, and you spoke through the prophets in the past. I'm grateful that you have now spoken to us today through your Son. This morning we ask that you will take the word of the prophet Isaiah and make it a help to us today. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated and take your Bibles at this point in time and uh, turn to the book of Isaiah, an Old Testament book. And uh, I'm gonna say something to you right up front. Um, For the next uh, 30 to 40 minutes to be helpful and meaningful to us, it is important that you have your Bible with you. And uh, can I be really frank? Many of you are not bringing your Bibles to church. Now we do have Bibles underneath the chairs and certain places you can grab one But um, honestly, friends, uh, in terms of what I have to say today, there is a real need to look at the page and to look at the text in terms of what is being said. So if you're embarrassed by what I just said, that's good, you should be. And I hope you'll bring your Bible with you next Sunday morning. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And so we turn to the prophet Isaiah, and we return to a series we began back in Advent season in 2019 entitled Christmas Foretold. We're looking at all of the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of Christ into the world, and uh, these Old Testament prophecies are also Christmas promises, and um, it's good that we're in the book of Isaiah. We finally have come to the book of Isaiah because there is more about Jesus Christ and about the promise of Christmas in the book of Isaiah than there is in the other Old Testament books. The book of Isaiah is filled with the Lord Jesus Christ. So our focus this morning is going to be in chapter seven, but I want you to start with me first of all here in Isaiah chapter one, verse one. Isaiah chapter one, verse one. We're looking now at the prophecy of Isaiah. And in this opening verse, The prophet Isaiah answers three important questions for us. What, who, and when? What, who, and when? What? The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That Isaiah, there's the who, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, kings of Judah. So there we have it, everything that Isaiah tells us in the 66 chapters of this book that he has written is a vision, a vision. So when we think of what, that's what it is, it's a vision, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. You see that word? Saw. He saw it. He saw it. I want to suggest to you today that in these opening words, Isaiah is essentially telling us that he wants to give to us a way of seeing. A way of seeing. You've had people say to you before, well, I don't see it that way. They see it in a different way. Isaiah wants to make sure that our sight is accurate. He gives to us a way of seeing. In other words, he gives to us a new perspective on things. And friends, this is very important and it is very good because you and I are blind at times to the things that we need to know and understand. In Isaiah then, in this vision that God gave to him, was enabled to see beyond the immediate appearances. Isaiah was enabled to see through the appearances to the reality that is behind everything. Now, a good example of this is when you go to chapter 6, because in chapter 6, the opening line is, in the year that King Uzziah died. That's that's the historical moment. The king of Judah has died. He's mentioned here in verse 1. But Isaiah sees the Lord in his temple. In the year that the king died, Isaiah sees the true king. He sees the true king, and his glory is filling the temple, and all of the, the, the beings of heaven are, are surrounding him, and they are, they are shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Isaiah is able to see something beyond the death of Uzziah. He is given a vision of the throne of, of God. So what Isaiah saw has the potential to to overturn the way we look at things. It has the potential to interrupt the way we think. Now, when it comes to the who, well, the who is Isaiah himself. It says here that he was the son of Amos. We don't really know for sure who Amos was. Some some Bible teachers speculate that he might have been the the brother of Amaziah, who was a king of Judah for a period of time, but we don't know this for sure. If that is the case, then Isaiah would have had some connection to the royal family of Judah. But what we do know is that the name Isaiah means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. That's what the whole book is about. You see, the people at this time when Isaiah wrote, the people of Judah, they were deceived They were in the dark. They believed believed that salvation rested on them, Like, like people today believe that somehow you and I have the power to save this planet. They believed that they were their own saviors. So this meant that the message that Isaiah brought was not a popular message to them. It was a truth that they would resist because it is the Lord who saves. Now the second aspect to the question, who, is right here in the opening line of Isaiah. It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It is concerning God's people. And the when is answered for us. It is during the reigns of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It is during their reigns that Isaiah is prophesying. Now, this is important because this was a pivotal moment in the history of Judah. They were living in a threatening world. To the east, the Assyrian empire was rising, a barbaric and cruel people, and Assyria was now moving westward in a southwesterly direction. And, of course, the nations that would lie in its path were afraid. And these four kings that are mentioned here, well, they had various mixed responses to the threat that was looming on the horizon. What is clear is, except for a few little glimmers of hope where faith was exercised, for the most part, they weren't looking to God. In spite of the fact that this massive superpower was on its way toward them, they were not looking to God. They were trying to develop their own strategies to somehow overcome the Assyrians. And Isaiah kept saying, it's the Lord who saves. And so no one took Isaiah seriously because all they could hear was the broken record, the Lord saves. Now as we consider this prophecy of of, uh, Isaiah, we also want to think about what we're going to put on the screen now, the book of Emmanuel. That takes us to chapter 7. You see, contained within the 66 chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah is a small section of about five chapters, seven through 11, which are called the book of Eman- Emmanuel. In other words, these, this smaller section of the, pro- the prophecy contains a very, a very it, it's a very small portion, and it's all about Emmanuel. And here in chapter 7 through 11, there are several prof- prof- prophecies or several promises that are given, and interestingly, they are all related to children. And the names of the children are given. And the names of these sons are meaningful names. They are symbol-laden names. So this morning, as we look at chapter 7, we're going to look at this under three headings. First of all, crisis. Crisis. Secondly, call. Third, sign. Crisis, call, and sign. So the crisis is made clear to us here in chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, Aram is another name for Syria, And Pekah, son of Ramaleah, king of Israel, and Israel is also called in this passage Ephraim, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now remember, Isaiah has already said in chapter 1, verse 1, that that the prophecy, the vision he sees, concerns Jerusalem and Judah. And now what do we read here? Well, there's something happening. These, these two kings are coming up against Ahaz, the king of Judah, and they're coming against Jerusalem. Now, we, we have to take a step back right at this point and, and, and try to understand what's being said here. So if you go from chapters 1 through chapter 5 of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Judah. And as I said, they are already thinking that that they are their own saviors. They are a deceived people. They are a rebellious people. And so from chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah is preaching that judgment is coming to them. They are a rebellious people. And he pronounces a series of woes, judgments upon them. But their, their greatest sin was that they refused to trust in the one true and living God. And so in chapter 6 then, Isaiah is given this vision of the true king who sits on the throne, and the true king commissions him. Who will go for us, he says. And Isaiah steps forward and he says, Here am I. Send me. And then the Lord says to him, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. You're going to preach for the whole of your life And the people are not going to listen to you. Now, isn't that a wonderful encouragement to a young preacher? I'm glad that most of you listen to me. You do listen to me, don't you? So that is the message. Now, in chapter 7, Isaiah attempts to show King Ahaz that God is great enough to trust, to be trusted. And so he stands now before King Ahaz. Ahaz did I just get Ahaz and Isaiah mixed mixed up I think I did Isaiah speaks and he stands before the king and he speaks to him now this brings us then chapter 7 verse 1 it brings us to the year 735 BC now that's a significant year because it is almost to the day 200 years 200 years since Solomon died Solomon was the son of David When Solomon reigned, Israel was a great nation. It was a united nation. But after Solomon died, you know that that there was trouble, and the result was that the ten tribes in the northern part of the nation, they seceded, and they formed their own nation. They did not want to give their obedience to, to, to the throne of David. And so they took the name Israel, and their capital city became Samaria. The two tribes that were in the south, they formed themselves into a nation, they were loyal to the throne of David, and they became known as Judah. So we are now 200 years into this very, very tragic division that occurred, and off in the east is Assyria, flexing its muscles. They are the Russians of the ancient world, and their king, Tiglath-Pileser, like Putin, is an expansionist. He wants to move in a southwesterly direction because he has his eyes set on Egypt, which was the breadbasket of the world in that day. So any of these nations that are in the way are in the way of the Assyrians. So Aram or Syria or Israel or Ephraim, they decide there's only one thing that we can do to stand up to to this king Let's form an alliance, and they, and they do. They, they form a defense pact. They defend. They, they establish a military coalition like NATO so that with their combined forces, they can somehow resist the will of the Assyrians. And they want Judah to join. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, says no. He refuses. And so Israel and Syria then, then decide, let's attack Judah, Let's get rid of Ahaz. Let's put a puppet king on the throne and then we'll incorporate Judah into our military alliance so that we've got the strength to stand up to the Assyrians. And so they attack. And that's what it says here. They marched up to fight against Jerusalem. Verse one. And uh, they want to make Judah theirs. Look at verse two. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They are terrified that Israel or Ephraim and Syria are coming against them at this point in time. Overcome with fear. And the reason is there is no faith there is no faith now here is a crisis designed by god so that judah will turn to the lord and trust in the lord and ahaz is the representative of judah what happens next well now we come to the call the call in isaiah chapter 7 verse 3 the lord speaks to isaiah And he says this in verse 3. Go out, you and your son, Shear-Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Now keep in mind that the role of the prophet was to speak to the people, but also to speak to the king and to advise the king, to appeal to a king, to, to urge him to do what was right. So he goes. The Lord tells him to. Go and meet Ahaz at this particular place at the end of the aqueduct. Now, what is Ahaz doing there? Well, he's inspecting the water supply of the city. You see, Ahaz is thinking in his mind, I need to prepare for an invasion. He is thinking there needs to be some stockpiling here of water resources. Now, who does Isaiah, who is Isaiah told to take with him when he goes to speak to the king? His son, Shiar Jashub. Now, why? I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments because it's a very, very important thing. But notice verse, verse 4. This is what Isaiah is told to say to Ahaz. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Ramaliah. So basically, God says to him, Ahaz, be confident. There is nothing for you to fear. You see, Ahaz thinks there's a danger, a danger there, he thinks that the danger is present. And God, through the prophet, is saying to him, there is no present danger at all. And the reason is, he describes the king of Israel and the king of Syria as two smoldering stubs of firewood, verse 4. Now, we've all sat around a campfire before. And we know what happens after the fire burns burns down. It's just those little stubs of wood that are left, and they're they're they're, all, they're 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 very dark. It's charcoal that's left over, and that's essentially what God is saying through Isaiah to Ahaz: Listen, these two threats that are out are out there. there. They're, it's all smoke. There's no fire. It's burned out. They have depleted themselves in attacking you. Jerusalem will not be taken. So Isaiah tells Ahaz what the kings were saying in verses 5 and 6. And then he tells Ahaz what the Lord says, and and the Lord gives him a word. Verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. There's the promise. A word from God to a wicked king. This is grace. But notice in verses 8 and 9, the Lord goes on and he speaks with mockery and with disdain about these two smoldering pieces of wood. And he says, For the head of Aram, the head of Syria, Damascus. That's all. And the head of Damascus is only, only resin. He's the king, he's nothing. Only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. God doesn't even mention the name of the king. Uh, He's he's the son of this other guy. It's It's like he is so insignificant to God, his name isn't even mentioned. He is spoken of with disdain. And friends, three years later, Syria was crushed. Aram was crushed by the Assyrians, and 10 years later, Israel was too and became a puppet vassal state, and 65 years later, as they continued to struggle against the Assyrians, Assyria finally came in and no longer wanted it as a puppet state, but they completely crushed Israel. And From that day on, Israel was no, no longer existed as a nation. And that's exactly what it says here. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. And what was God doing? He was offering to Ahaz an op- the opportunity of a lifetime to experience what it would mean to be saved by Almighty God. But this means that Ahab then, or Ahaz, must treat God as God. So look at verse 9, the last line, the last sentence. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, this can be translated in a number of different ways. It could read, if you are not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. Or if you don't firm up, then you will not be confirmed. Or if you don't live by faith, you will not live at all. However we translate this, it is God calling Ahaz to faith. God, the sovereign Lord, is appealing to a wicked king, lean on me. If you do, you will stand. But if you treat me as irrelevant, then you will become irrelevant. Now, notice verse 10. The Lord speaks again. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, presumably through Isaiah. Now, let's just stop there. Isn't that amazing? Here is a king who, who, who is a wicked king, and he, he doesn't want anything really to do with God, but the Lord speaks to him not just once, but a second time. This is the goodness of God. Friends, isn't it a, wonder, a wonderful thing that, that, that if we are not moved by one word from God, that God in his grace would speak to us a second time to get our attention? And he says, ask the Lord your God, verse 11, for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. (laughs) In other words, Ahaz, just use your imagination. Let it go as far as you want, as great as you want. I will give you the sign that you asked for. I will give you a sign of hope. He asked for a sign. Now let me go back to Isaiah's son. Because Isaiah's son is standing right there next to Isaiah. Isaiah's looking face to face at Ahaz. Ahaz can see Isaiah, and he can see Isaiah's son standing there. Now, why did God say to Isaiah, back in verse 4, bring your son. The son's name is Shear-Jashub, which means... A remnant will return. A remnant will return. Isaiah's son is a sign to Ahaz that even though judgment is going to come on Judah and the judgment will be great, a remnant will still be delivered. This is a sign of hope. A sign that there will be those who return to the Lord, they will return in Victory, and and, and it is as though God is using the sun as a visual aid for Ahaz to understand you need to be part of this remnant that will return. Now, this is the grace of the living God. He's already given him a sign in Isaiah's son. Now he says, Ask me for a second sign, I'll give you another sign. He's already spoken his word to a, a Ahaz, and now he speaks his word a second time. He gives him another word, he gives him another sign. This is God's grace to a wicked man. Now go down to verse twelve. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. You realize that God was giving to this king a blank check? And Ahaz rejects it. Why? Because he is refusing to trust in the living God. But notice, in his refusal of God, he uses very pious, spiritual, religious language. I will not put the Lord to the test. Do you realize that he's actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. It's spiritual talk. He's quoting God's word. But in doing so, he is actually doing the devil's work because he is doing it all for his own reason and purpose. This is hypocrisy. Ahaz knows, if, if I let God in then I have to let God be in control. Listen, friends, if, if, if you don't really want God, then you will find a way. You will find a way to make your unbelief seem reasonable, even spiritual. In 2 Kings chapter 16, we're given some insight as to what is actually going on here, which Isaiah does not tell us, because... Ahaz was already making a deal with the Assyrians. He sent word to Tiglath-Pileser saying, I am your servant, I am your vassal, save me from the kings of Aram and Ephraim. And he actually gave to Tiglath-Pileser silver and gold which was out of the temple in Jerusalem. Now notice what happens next, verse 11. I want you to notice this. He says, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Notice the emphasis on your, your God for a sign. He wants to save you. Will you let him? Well, Ahaz essentially says no. So look at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God? Also, emphasis on my. What is is Isaiah saying here? He's saying, my God is not on your side anymore. Ahaz, you have missed the boat. And do you realize that when Ahaz rejected what god had said said to him and refused to ask for a sign ahaz was actually he wasn't just rejecting god he wasn't just saying i don't have faith in god he was actually rejecting the covenant that god had made to his father david for in second samuel 7 god made a promise to king david And if you read 2 Samuel through, it it crescendos in these words, the words of God saying, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Syria and Ephraim cannot overthrow Judah. If they could, then God's promise to David would have been made void And salvation would not have come to us through the Messiah who was a descendant of King David. So when Ahaz rejected the word of the Lord and the sign of the Lord, he was asserting that God's promise is not true. What an irony. A son of David rejecting the covenant that God had made with David. So God steps in. He steps in, and we come now to the word sign again. He gives Ahaz a sign. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now what's important to note here is that this sign wasn't just for this king. The sign was for the whole nation. It was for all of the people. It was not just the birth of any child. It was the birth of a significant child. Now, immediately, you and I think Christmas because we know Matthew 1, and we just read Matthew 1 today. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew understood something about Isaiah 7. But If you look carefully at Isaiah 7, you realize here that this sign is linked to Ahaz and to Isaiah. In other words, the name Emmanuel, God with us, was designed to encourage Ahaz to trust in God, not in the Assyrians. In other words, this prophecy that was given here, this sign is in in fact, something that pertained to this historical setting. Not just to something in the future, but to this historical setting. To this crisis that Ahaz was facing. Now, now this is a mystery to us, and it's, it's a mystery to all of us how prophecy works. I've talked to you in the past that, that when the prophets spoke, they would speak of things to come in the future, and it was sort of like looking at a mountain range. You, you, you see the first mountain, and you think, oh, well, that, that's pretty near. It's going to happen really soon. But, but then when you pass the mountain and the fulfillment of what happened, you realize that there's some other mountain peaks beyond, beyond it because the prophecy doesn't just pertain to the first mountain. It pertains to the second mountain, too. That's what's taking place here. Let me put it in another another way. The prophecy of Emmanuel, the sign, was fulfilled partially in the immediate historical context in which the prophecy was spoken. But the prophecy was also fulfilled completely at a future date. So first, first of all, the prophecy that's given here, Emmanuel... The sign will be a child, and the virgin will be with a child, give birth to a son. It was predicted, it predicted the birth of Isaiah's son. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse, verse 1. The Lord said to me to Isaiah, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. I had to I had to read that. I had to read that name 15 times this morning in order to get it correct. Write. With an ordinary pen, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jabericah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess. This is Isaiah speaking. The prophetess is his wife. He went to her. He lay with her. He was intimate with her. And she gave birth. She conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say my mother or my father, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, Maharshalal Hashbaz means the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. And it's connected here to this military alliance between Syria and Ephraim or Israel. And through the birth of Isaiah's son, It was being communicated that God is going to be with us. So it was fulfilled at this point in time. But, but, the name isn't Emmanuel, it's Maharshal al-Hashbaz, and and the prophetess, the mother of this son, the wife of Isaiah, was not a virgin. So it only has a partial fulfillment in the day of Ahaz, which tells us, according to what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, which we read this morning, that this sign also prefigures the birth of the Lord Jesus. So Matthew knows Isaiah, and he's recording the story of the birth of Jesus And the Holy Spirit leads him to to Isaiah chapter 7, and Matthew says the Emmanuel prophecy given to Ahaz in Isaiah's day, which was fulfilled partially then through the birth of Isaiah's son, has a more complete fulfillment in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And Matthew understands that The birth of Emmanuel is a picture of salvation. It was a picture of salvation in Ahaz's day, and it's a picture of salvation when Jesus Christ was born. So in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, we read Matthew through and we begin to understand immediately that there actually existed, when Matthew wrote, a a coalition of, of hostile powers just like Syria and Ephraim and Assyria. For after we are told that the birth of Jesus is fulfilled, the, 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 the prophecy of Emmanuel is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, we read in Matthew 2 about what King Herod wants to do with the Christ child a wicked, hostile king. Then Jesus is taken in Matthew 4 into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Then you read Matthew through and you discover that there are all these religious leaders who are out to get Jesus. And then finally, Jesus Christ is sentenced to death by the Roman state, the superpower of that day. And Matthew looks back on Isaiah 7. He says, like, like this, this is the birth of Jesus. Because he sees everything through the lens that the Holy Spirit gave to him. Listen, friends, at the ultimate level, at the ultimate level, the baby Jesus fulfills the truest meaning of Emmanuel. There are all kinds of political crises throughout. History. There are international crises that take place, but they come and they go. They come and they, and, they, and they go. And God is needed. God is needed whenever these crises happen. But the greatest crisis that you and I face is the crisis of our own hearts, the crisis of our sin. We are filled with pride like Ahaz is, and we want to, to, to manufacture our own salvation. But our sin has separated us from the living God. And so Matthew tells us, in Matthew one, in the passage we read today, God speaks to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because of what is conceived in in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now there's a symbol-laden name you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because just like Isaiah's name is the Lord saves, so Jesus' name is he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds this. All this took po- place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, in closing today, I want to focus on two things. There are are three things. I'm going to have all, all three of these things come up on the screen. I'm only going to deal with two of them now. I want to talk to you about faith, and I want to talk to you about the word Emmanuel, and just share just a little bit more, and we'll come back to remnant in a couple of weeks' time. Let's talk about faith. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't have some kind of faith I mean, it would be an absolute waste of your hour and your time to be here if you didn't have faith. Ahaz illustrates for us that being religious, being pious, being spiritual is not the same as having faith. Ahaz is the son of David so as king he had the appearance of a walk with god but he did not have a walk with god he was exactly what paul warned warned timothy about in second timothy 3 that in the last days there will be individuals people who have an appearance or a form of godliness but they deny its power going to church is good reading the bible is good Avoiding lust and sinful indulgence is good. Giving help to those who are in need, it's all good. But it's not faith. In many cases, it is nothing more than a substitute for faith. And if you build your life on these things, if you rely on those things, those self-salvation things that you're relying on, then you are simply just building your life on sand, as Jesus warned, so that when the storms of life come, when the crises come, you're going to fall and your faith will not be proven to be true. So when the bottom falls out of your life, when a tragedy comes to you, when a crisis comes, when a death occurs, or you hear the word from a, doc, a doc, doctor who you respect and you weren't expecting what he was going to say to you, And it shakes you to the core of your being. Where do you turn then in that crisis? Because what you turn to immediately shows where your faith really is. Go back to chapter 7 for for just a moment in verse 3. I find it interesting in verse 3 that the Lord speaks through Isaiah and says this to Ahaz. Actually, verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. You see, when faith is operating, God gives a calmness to your heart, to your spirit, to your soul. When faith is operational, agitation isn't there. When faith is at work in your heart, you look at the things that cause fear in a completely different way, because fear and faith are contrary to each other. Faith in God removes the fear in the heart. In Proverbs 3, verses 25 and 26, we read these words, "'Have no fear of sudden disaster.'" or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. So when God says to you in his holy word, fear not, friends, that means there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Now as you ponder that for a moment and and, and look at your own faith, keep this in mind also. Also. That the faith that Ahaz was being called to was a faith in the covenant that God had made with the house of David. Now think for a moment about you and Jesus and his words to you. This cup, remember? This cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Just as Ahaz should have trusted in the covenant that God had made with the house of David, so you and I must put our faith and trust in the covenant that Jesus Christ has made with us. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 could say, I'm I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced, I'm not shaken at all. I am convinced that neither death nor life There are things about death that threaten us, crises, the crises of death. Even life itself is filled with crisis after crisis, trouble after trouble. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, hallelujah. He has made a covenant with us. So allow that truth of the covenant promise that he made with you to fortify your faith for whatever crisis you face. And secondly, finally, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now there is a sense in which the promise here isn't anything new really because the idea in one sense the the, in one sense it isn't new because the 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 idea that God is with his people is found all throughout the Bible God was with Adam and Eve as they walked in the garden with him God was with Abraham when he when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and and told him to go to the land that he would show him God was with Joseph when his brothers sold him as a slave and he was taken down into Egypt and he had to languish for a period of time in a prison. God was with him. And God was with the people of Israel in the Exodus when they left Egypt and and traveled for 40 years on their way to the promised land. And if you're a believer and you've walked with God for any period of time, you know that that he is with you. And, And it's an incredible truth. Wesley on his his deathbed his dying words were the best is this God is with us amen and you know that his protection his presence is protection isn't it and his presence with you is, is comfort isn't it isn't it his presence with you is is sustenance for your soul but in Emmanuel. In Emmanuel, God with us. God with us is something at a different level. This is something even more profound than just simply sensing that God is with me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because in Emmanuel, God took on human flesh. He he took on a human body. And in his body, he took our sin, your sin, and my sin. You see, with the coming of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the reality of God's witness was taken to an entirely new dimension. Prior to the incarnation of Jesus, we could have a sense that God is with us, and God is with us is an, is an incredible truth, even if Jesus had not come but it would only be partial in its hope, there would always be the grave, the single most inescapable reality of our human experience, the one reality that the eternal immortal God could not share or remove if he is just, because the wages of sin is death. But God in Christ has gone all the way. God in Christ has gone all the way. God in Christ has gone with us all the way into the grave. And having gone in with us, he can bring us out of the grave with him. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Hallelujah. Please stand. Our God and Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son, born of a woman. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and that he who has seen you has seen the Father. We thank you that you are God with us. And we thank you that you went to the cross on our behalf, that as God with us, you shared in our humanity You shared in all that we go through, and you took sin for us, and you dealt with it decisively, nailing it to your cross, and we praise you today that because you are God with us, you have opened heaven for us, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We thank you for being our Emmanuel. Amen. Let me ask you this. Anybody here struggling with sin? Remember Emmanuel. God is with you. Anybody here facing a real problem in your life at this point in time? Crisis? Remember Emmanuel. Have you heard recently some news that has shaken you to the core? Remember Emmanuel, God is with us.